0: Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a mental health researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems and we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have Professor of
1: Public Health and Psychiatry at Swansea University, Anne John. Anne is the Principal Investigator and Co-Director of Datamind, a health data research hub and a global resource for mental health researchers. In this episode we talk about the importance of collaboration, the inequalities and in support for those with a mental illness and understanding how data is used in research.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of Open Minds. We're absolutely delighted. Our guest, Craig and I's guest this week is is Anne John. And Anne is a professor at Swansea University. And Anne will tell us a bit about, hopefully, about her career, uh, her journey thus far. And Anne and I know each other pretty well. We've been involved in a number of different things together. And, And Anne is just fantastic. So welcome, Anne, to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Welcome um,
0: in. Glad to be here. Great, great. So maybe uh, let's just kick off. Just I was joking there about your whatever you'll tell us about your career, but that's the reason we want to do a couple of things with the podcast today. Tell us a bit about your you and your journey, because I think you bring really unique insights to the field of mental health science. But maybe it will, well, maybe it's a bit on your journey, and then of course, as we move through that, we'll we'll touch on to the work that you were doing, the big data stuff. That you've been doing, I mean, across, not just on suicide, where I, and self harm, I know you, where I know your work, but more broadly than that. So let's just kick off, Anne. So tell us who you are. It's a sort of this is, this is your life type thing. So who are you? You've started off obviously you have a medical background. So let's, would you tell us a bit about that?
1: So I, I guess if I go right back, I would say that um, in school, I was really interested in history and sociology, but I was a bit of an all rounder. And so when it came to choosing A-levels, I got quite seduced by um, the sort of helping people side of medicine. So then I went off to medical school and um, through various routes, including a bit of psychiatry, I came to general practice. And I think general practice really brought all of those things together because you're seeing people in their families and their wider contexts and but I sort of started feeling that in in general practice you were really seeing people when a lot of the things that affected their lives and affected their mental health had already been decided um, and that's when I did my public health training and during um, when you do public health, they sort of call it information for action um, and that's where I learn all my sort of analysis skills, but they really come from a place of wanting to influence practice and policy so so then I sort of without ever having planned it, took an academic um, job so I sit between the NHS and a and university, and that's a really good place to sort of work with people at the cutting edge of science, do science, but also work with people who can make a difference on the ground and policy makers.
0: Quite, quite a lot there. So just rewind a bit then. So how long did you spend working in general practice? Or did you, I mean, or was that just locum-based work or was it just post-qualification or, or what, what, what did you do there?
1: Predominantly, so I worked for about three years in one practice and then sort of had, children and made the decision to locum but it gives you a real insight so Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, primary care work is mental health related Mm -hmm. whether it's mental health problems um, in those with physical disorders or physical disorders in those with mental health problems and so so you know from from children up to older people you get a real exp- you get a real exposure to how much mental health issues affect people's lives and choices mm-hmm. and trajectories mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah no no i no, I, I mean i agree i mean really important insights at that, at that early stage in your well your clinical career obviously before you moved into academic career so am i right in thinking your title your current title is your professor of public health and psychiatry is that right yes and- so i mean are there many joint chairs like that in the, in the uk
1: i think they're becoming increasingly common mm. but as as many of us know historically mental health both in services and research is, has been underfunded mm-hmm. and then also in people's lives there's been a lot of stigma so so i think there wasn't a room for a lot of us beforehand whereas i think now people i think covid because lots of people who maybe led slightly more protected lives never experienced a lot of mental health challenges i think it's really opened up opened people's eyes Mm -hmm. to the importance of feeling mentally healthy and how much it affects you so so now i think it's increasing but i i don't think we were a very broad breed
0: yeah no i'm just saying because in glasgow we've got a separate chair in psychiatry and separate chair in in public health and I think obviously one of the things we've all learned moving forward in, in the field of mental health science is trying to break down those silos and I think bringing the expertise from psychiatry the expertise from public health and bringing them together for example only two disciplines we're trying to trying to do that much more broadly.
1: Couldn't agree with you more so one of um so I work in uh with electronic health records a lot And in Wales, we're able to link primary care and secondary care health records. And I think that silo that happens in practice between people working in the community and people working in specialist services, you can also see that in some of the research and data that we do. So, you know, lots of the things that we know about people with mental health problems are based on um, people who are in contact with hospital services and psychiatrists and I think you know being able to look at the primary care and the secondary care data and show how many people live with mental health problems in the community and never reach mental health service is really important.
0: Well and indeed if we look to the field that both you and I are passionate about in terms of suicide prevention we know in the UK less than Thirty percent of people who die by suicide have been in contact with mental health or clinical services in the or mental health clinicians in the twelve months before death. But what well, is it? Upwards of eighty percent will have been in contact with primary care. So really, really, that I mean that statistic alone highlights the importance of breaking down those silos, as as you as you describe. So then, moving on and on, So how did you get in then involved in or in terms of suicide and self harm work? I mean, was that just as a consequence of the mental health focus on psychiatry or?
1: Everyone has experience of knowing someone who's died by suicide. But also for me, there was when I when I look at suicide prevention, I see it as the tip of the iceberg of almost everything else I'm interested in. You know, we we very much accept we need to take a public health approach. Um, lots of the people, lots of people who die by suicide are some of the most, you know, excluded people in our society. Mm-hmm. Whether, you know, some of that is things we'd recognise, like they've got uh, a severe mental illness. But some of that is because they're excluded because they're unemployed or... Um, experiencing debt and I think it you know suicide prevention really shows how we have to have that breadth of practice.
0: Yeah absolutely and so what, I mean what you've touched on obviously maybe a focus of a lot of the th- a theme which may run through this podcast today is is our inequalities agenda and how we try to tackle absolutely. mental health inequalities and, and so that maybe brings me on then to thinking about Because you've been involved in a number of obviously big initiatives, and and actually in in Wales itself bringing together lots of different partners, and so could you tell us a bit about um, first of all the work that you've done? Maybe if we start at the Welsh level, and then we'll maybe move beyond that because obviously you've been involved in MQ-funded or supported work as well as obviously other national work. So if that maybe if that's a way to go, could you maybe tell us about? Maybe because I think we could probably learn a lot of lessons from what what's happened in Wales and how you've been managed to to bring together different partners and and really um, be incredibly influential. So maybe could you tell us a bit about first of all your Welsh work?
1: So I, I guess for me one of the things that working with data does is I never forget the people behind it, and I think some of that comes from having worked clinically. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I really know where the data comes from. But then, because of the sort of analysis stuff that I've done in the past, I'm much less hands-on these days. Um, you can see what's not there. Mm-hmm. So, so the people we have this phrase where we go, "What gets counted matters." And what you see with with lots of excluded people experiencing inequalities is they're not visible in the data. Mm -hmm. And through using data, you're able to, and the results that you generate, we were able to pull together lots of interested parties. You know, so, so practitioners are interested, policymakers are interested. And so through work, Um, I chair what we call our National Advisory Group in Wales for suicide prevention. And I think because fundamentally I'm a generalist, I feel like, you know, and that's not always a comfortable place to sit Mm. because, because you're never really you know the expert
0: what do you mean what but what, because what, I, I wouldn't have thought of you as a generalist so what do you mean by generalist
1: so so when I say generalist I would say that from doing general practice from being a medic who did a sociology degree I've always seemed to sit across different boundaries in mm-hmm. in my life and I don't know you know sometimes I think is that the lot of the child of immigrants you know that you're used to sitting in places that you don't completely belong in and finding a language that works Mm -hmm. and so I think through that and through the topic itself you know one I think suicide prevention suicide and mental health have touched almost everyone you're able to bring people together and try and speak you know with an overarching aim that's common in a language that they understand but with but with evidence You know, it's not opinion. You're using real world data from across different sectors to speak to everyone.
0: Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So then go back to your, obviously, the work you've done with um, in Wales in terms of leading the seizure prevention advisory group. So that led to the establishment then of, wasn't it a, 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 a surveillance system?
1: Over time, a lot has happened through that group. So you know, we worked very closely with policy ma- makers. We made we developed the strategy for Wales. You know, I think one of the biggest differences we made was that originally there was very little ring fence funding for suicide prevention, mm-hmm. and and we didn't really have. Um, people who were specifically assigned to work in that role so we had lots of people who were working tirelessly but often it was over and above other roles that they had um, so it was a it was a massive change when um welsh government made that commitment um, and then following that when we when COVID happened one of the you know and you you were part of this rory you know we were all very concerned you know and and we were concerned because we thought that lots of the risk factors that we knew um previously you know people being isolated people um having financial difficulties people being at home potentially where home wasn't necessarily a safe place and they were going to be exposed to more domestic violence and abuse we you know we were concerned that suicide rates would increase and you know that got conflated with lots of anti-lockdown lobbying you know and there was lots i know i know you you were involved as well there was lots of unsubstantiated uh, percentages of increases in suicide rates all over the internet and i think it became important for us to know what was really happening you know so I was involved in setting up the real-time suicide surveillance system in Wales, but then you, me, and a bunch of others with Jay Perkis from the uh, University of Melbourne set up the Global Suicide Study mm-hmm. where we tried to access real-time data from around the world. You know, and what, what we found was in, in that sort of first year and a half in the vast majority of places that we had data for, suicide rates were stable mm-hmm. um, or reduced. But I think the thing about the reason we could do the global suicide study so quickly was because, was you know, partly because we had those networks around the world in our field and everyone, you know, traditionally people aren't good at sharing their data, but we, you know, everyone got together, but also through MQ, we had the funded infrastructure through the Adolescent Mental Health Data Platform um, to house the data. And, yeah. um, and what that is, is what we call a trusted research environment. It's where you can house data and, and people can't get at it.
0: So, so OK, so lots going on there, Anne. <laughs> Let's try and unpack some <laughs> of that, right? Um, so can I can so so we'll come back to the we'll come back to the suicide data in a second, but I'm just really curious on the and just thinking more broadly. You mentioned the adolescent platform, which um, obviously is supported by MQ. Can you maybe tell the listeners about that, what the aims of that are, um, what we what you've done with it so, though, thus far, and really why it's important?
1: So lots of people are doing lots of research. In different electronic health records, and we never quite know if people are measuring the same things. you know so so I could be saying I'm looking at anxiety in young people, but I'm but someone else might say the same thing they'll use the same labels, but actually they're looking at stress, which can be a different thing. so there's something about people are having the same understanding. We call it harmonisation and measuring the same outcomes. And so the Adolescent Mental Health Data Platform was about making data findable so that, you know, it used to be we'd do a project and by the time we'd pulled all the data together and sorted it all out and cleaned it, we had about three months to do the analysis, (laughs) which is the important bit
0: exactly
1: Um, yeah so so what we were doing in the adp was creating algorithms so people could do that cleaning that definitions really quickly so that they could spend most of their project doing the analysis in a a data environment that's safe and secure um, protects people's privacy and that Researchers who access the data have to go through ethical applications. They also have to go through safe researcher training. And then before anything comes out of the environment, it gets reviewed so that small numbers can't come out, so people aren't identifiable. Mm -hmm. So so that sort of research infrastructure means that people can get to the bit. That we're actually paid to do, much
0: faster. So that, that, that's brilliant. So then, two follow-ups on that. One is: so can anybody access that platform, assuming they go through a process?
1: Yeah. So there's a so so what you would what what happens is is you first of all you 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 contact the platform, and then you have what we call a scoping meeting. And that's where the feasibility of what you want to do is there. Um, there are some costs involved. Um, you, have to un- you have to be a safe researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and what that means is you have to have certain accreditations. Um, and, and then, you know, people from uh, different universities can access the data. There are different safeguards. Um, for people from different um, settings.
0: Okay, no, that's really helpful. And then, so then, just a wider question, just and we think about the growth in big data, obviously, globally is, I mean, if I was a member of the public and I'm, I may be concerned, A, is my data going to be included? And if it is included, what safeguards are in place that I won't be identified and it is confidential and anonymous and so on?
1: So I guess there's lots of things that go on around this. There's lots of re- re- regulations, there's lots of safeguards that we all have to adhere to. And any system like the Sale Data Bank or ADP has has certifications that relate to that, that relate to GDPR and, and various things that are set down in law and regulations. There's lots of work that's gone on about, you know, opt-in, opt-out and consent and one of the projects that I work with with MQ is called DataMind and um, DataMind, there's uh, an organisation like an institute, a UK-wide institute called um, Health Data Research UK and DataMind is a hub in there for mental health and we have a really strong and active um, sort of patient lived experience public group. And these are the, we we work with the public to develop one. So at the moment we're developing what we're calling a data literacy course with an organisation called McPIN. Because in order for, for people to have these conversations about, you know, how they want their data stored, whether they can be in or out. We all need to have some sort of common language to make those conversations meaningful. So we're developing that course. Myself, um, through some of my projects, you know, I, I remember going to um, MQ's youth advisory group and I jumped straight into, you know, what are we gonna do? What's the data? How are we gonna link it? that's the exciting stuff and they wanted to know exactly how we linked it they wanted to know the linkage procedures and that hadn't even crossed my mind that people would be interested in that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I think what that taught me at a very early stage in in this sort of data career is, is that we really need we constantly need to work with people To understand what they're happy with and that's happening at all sorts of levels have you found that people are fearful to share their data it's very it's nuanced so um, we recently did a big survey with young people and and their views weren't different really from most people so if data is anonymized which the data i work with is anonymized um If it's gonna be used, if the analysis is gonna be used to improve our understanding or management of people with mental health problems, generally people are very happy for it to be shared with people in the NHS and researchers with all the appropriate safeguards. So people are very much behind that. Um, Where things get trickier is, where it's being shared with industry or potentially going to be um, used for profit. And that's an area that, that, that one of the things we're doing in DataMind is uh, we've got these two parts of DataMind. We've, we've got the, a large group of people that we're talking with who are taking part in every single part of everything that happens in DataMind. But we've also got what we call an industry forum. And what we want to do eventually is bring those two groups together to develop standards for what's acceptable, what isn't, what are the tensions, where are the limits around working with industry. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you can't not recognise that that exists. But for um, researchers in the NHS... Where work is to help understand and manage mental health problems, uh, people are very positive about the use of their data. And can you? But
0: on that, then can but can you um, retrospectively remove your data?
1: It depends on what research is is being done. So there are um, discussions and systems being developed about routinely collected data. That's harder. Mm -hmm. Where you've consented then absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. But so at the moment that it, it really depends on the study. One of the things that I found really interesting in in some of the work that we've done, we did some work on um cyberbullying and bullying and self-harm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we found was that for lots of other researchers, um because social media data a lot of it is like freely accessible. Some researchers assumed that young people, in particular, were happy for it to be used. When we did that survey about use of data, in actual fact, young people felt more strongly about their social media data being used than their routinely collected.
0: As in, most more, more strongly against it being used.
1: Well, much more that they wanted it used with consent. Okay. Yeah. It's understandable because there's so many images in that data that they were really struggling with how it could be properly anonymized.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the other bit is that what that the social media data highlights is that we've all usually unbeknownst to us, we've all signed up to data sharing agreements when we've joined these, <laughs> these apps that we've never properly read, probably, and that include those. Obviously, data sharing agreements, but I suppose it is a, a really a really difficult area and something I think which is so fast in its evolution now in terms of the the legal requirements as well.
1: So when I was talking about that work with um, industry and and the public and patients, those are the sorts of things that we need to explore because if we're all accepting that nobody's reading the thing of like. To, then in our world, the onus would be on us to make to make it more people be more engaged with it, wouldn't that? I think there's lots. There's still lots of work to do, but generally people see the benefit.
0: Yeah, but I suppose there's always strikes me as a wider point, and I don't mean this specifically to do with social media data, but in terms of the obviously informed consent is what you're getting at, and and obviously all the changes over the last fifteen or twenty years. In terms of requirements rightly on investigators to ensure that the information is provided and patient information sheets or whatever it is but i mean some cases and certainly some of the feedback we've gotten you must have had the same is there's so much information now required in some traditional p- participant information sheets now that it's impossible for people to properly understand it and i do think that's a challenge between Yes, in one level, all the boxes are ticked in that, all this information about every which way the data will be used. But I dare say if you did, uh, after somebody completed and faulty read the form, the information sheet, and you asked them, what did it actually say? I think you might get a very, very quiet response.
1: Absolutely agree with you. I think it's all, all of the things we're talking about are about being proportionate aren't they? So like lots of consent forms, not just in data studies are so long now. I, you know, I could barely read it. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, And then, you know, sometimes, sometimes there are barriers to accessing data that people have consented to being used for research because it's hidden behind so many protective walls. And that means that the research gets quite delayed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, yeah.
1: So, you know, Sally McManus has got a, a brilliant slide showing how much the 2007 APMS got used and how much the 2014 one got used because of all the different permissions. So so there's
0: just, just for the for the purpose of the of the listener though, so Sally McManus it works for Natsen and Natsen uh, um organize if they don't I don't know, well organize certain or curate um the well, the semi-regular adult psychiatric morbidity survey, just for those who are unfamiliar with that. Yeah, but you're right in terms of it was so much more difficult to access this time.
1: So, so I think I think what all of these things say to me in a constantly moving feast where data is concerned about what's out there, what we can access, how we can analyse it even, um, is that that constant dialogue between regulators Policymakers, practitioners, researchers, public, and the patient—patients need to needs to happen continuously.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Just to sort of move things on a bit, and uh, a couple of other questions on sort of the data science and the big data challenges is, as I often wonder about the quality of mental health data that is re- routinely recorded, and similarly with physical health data. But I just know that. In Scotland, for example, when we record our even our self harm data, hospital admissions, there's a lot of challenges with doing that. So, could you tell us a bit about in your experiences of how how we find that balance of ensuring data quality and that, but making sure it isn't you don't have to wait ten years for it and so on. So, how do you go about that in Wales?
1: With lots of checks. Mm. So, I'm a great believer in people using, you know, doing lots of checks. On their data doing lots of checks on their findings compared to other findings you know doing those basic skills when you look at a data set i think you need to do in routinely collected data absolutely um i think it's understanding where it's come from this is data that hasn't been collected for research this yeah. is you know this is you know healthcare professionals going about their day-to-day work managing and treating people you know in our field in crisis and and you know and and we're fussing because they didn't put the right code in you know i remember doing all that and i literally didn't care what i put down
0: (laughs) you didn't say that at the time about you (laughs) you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so you know what that shows us is there's also an element of us making sure that people understand why it's important. You know, so 15 years ago, I never felt filled out um, the ethnicity questions. You know, I always said, prefer not to say or just ignore it, And that was partly because subconsciously I must've realized that, you know, saying that you came from an ethnic background was often a disadvantage in life. And there's lots of evidence that shows that. Mm-hmm. Now i feel it in studiously because you realize that unless it goes back to that if things don't get counted you can't highlight need you can't highlight discrepancies so i think there's an element of training of people who are collect, doing that routinely collected data input of why it matters but i think we we do have to have an understanding of the pressures in services.
0: I mean, the, when you got whatever waiting list targets and to waiting time targets, um, yeah, it, it is really it is challenging. And, and I suppose if you're in the, on the ground, so-called jobbing clinician, I mean, what what's incentive for you to do that when you have a, a, a long waiting list um, at your door, so to speak? Okay, no, that that's really helpful. Just um, and thanks for that. So maybe just move on a couple of, couple of other questions before we sort of bring it to a, a, a close. Maybe could you tell us a bit about um, um a project you're working on now, and because uh, I know you've been doing some work on predicting early mortality or premature mortality in the context of multi-morbidity or mental illness. Or do you want me to tell us about that work? And I know you've just it's been and published in schizophrenia research.
1: We basically. Did work where we linked uh, data from general practice and data from mental health services and hospital services. And we looked at why. So so people with severe mental illness, so by that I mean sort of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and um, they die 10 to 15 years before the general population. Now, to me, that's a huge health injustice. And we really need to understand why. And there, there might be biological reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Because of my background, I tend towards social reasons for that. So what we did was we looked at, at what people were dying from. And what we found was that generally people with those disorders die from the same things as the rest of us. So two thirds of the reasons were, you know, heart disease, uh respiratory disease like pneumonia and things, diabetes, cardiometabolics things, all of that. Yeah. And but they were two or three times more likely to die of those things than uh, people without those illnesses. They were between 12 and 16 times more likely to die from by suicide or die from what we know as sort of unknown causes. And many unknown causes are suicide or heart attacks. And I guess what that highlights for you is, one, a huge gap, so a huge inequality, but also the places that we need to manage things. Mm -hmm. You know, is it that um, part of the reason people with severe mental illness die more often from you know, things like pneumonia, is it because they present late? That gives us a real opportunity for prevention.
0: So why why do you think they present late? What's the explanation for that?
1: Well, because it's well recorded that people with mental health problems have, you know, our services aren't really set up for people with mental health services. You know, if you've got to call and make an appointment before 8.30, that's very challenging. But I find that challenging let alone yeah. if I had a severe mental illness and was unwell. Um, so we need to design our services more around those people. It also shows that in suicide prevention, those with severe mental illness, we really need uh, a focus on that. And we do have that. You know, we've we've got uh, the National Confidential Inquiry and looking at those pathways. So we know that... Uh, uh, many people who take their own lives with severe mental illness, it follows an admission. You know, Mm. it's quite soon after an admission. I think about a a third of those who die. So so what what this sort of work does is it really pinpoints where we can make a difference.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's real-world data. I think it speaks to policymakers and commissioners much more strongly than... What we call discovery science, you know, much more than you know the bench stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. But then, okay. So I'll challenge you then. And since you've just said this sort of research um, speaks more to policymakers, okay. So I'm a policymaker, uh, and I want I and I want to tackle the inequalities agenda, the health inequalities. Give me one or two things. One of my number two priorities. What should I do?
1: I think there's the global stuff of, you know, you can have active labor markets, you can have universal basic income, you can have fair benefits, you know, pulling people out of poverty, the risk factors that are associated with all of those things. Mm -hmm. You can have treatment, you can have services that are integrated. Understand that, and and by services, I don't just mean primary and secondary care, and you know, making sure liaison services work in secondary care and the community, but also within our schools, people having you know inreach from mental health services in the same way that like fifteen years ago I was involved in inreach into prisons of secondary mental health care services. So I think there's there's all the work around service and access and then as well as all the sort of tablet treatments i think we need to get better at things like social prescribing you know mm-hmm. addressing um loneliness in our communities one of the, one of the reasons we think suicide rates were stable or or reduced in the early part of the pandemic is about social cohesion mm-hmm. and communities coming together and i think You know, that may not be the only reason, but I think there are things there that we can learn from and use in the future to protect people with mental health problems.
0: Not great. Not really clear, really clear um, calls to action, really, and things. But what's interesting about some of what you said, it's stuff that used to be in place, but we stopped doing, and through austerity, austerity and and I know obviously we both, the three of us would agree really concerning time now obviously with what's about to happen uh globally and in terms of the cost of living crisis and so yeah. on as we, as we move forward so a really challenging time and before we let you go just a couple of quick quick questions uh, um which would be really great one is well how do you look after your own mental health
1: so um during covid i um, was doing lots of government advice like sage and everything and i literally think i sat down at my desk for two years and um, i think i was clicking when i stood up and um, so so i think exercise is really important so i do yoga and i, I do like a gym thing um, and i walk my dog along a gym so thing off. or
0: a gym thing
1: gym i also do a gym thing <laughs> Well, so that might be less appropriate. <laughs> um, and then um, I walk my dog a lot and I love walking in woods. And then I think family and friends, you know, none of that stuff I think is rocket science. We all know we should do it, but then pressures of life stop us doing it. But I think that coming, you know, that change for me. It's really showed me how important it is to protect those things and and how I think you you stay more in your life and connected, but also more productive in work. Yeah. If you make sure that you're doing those things.
0: So no, thanks for that. And so one last thing in which we try and ask all of our guests is is the thinking back to your your um, younger years. So what advice would you give your 16 year old self? And it can be on anything. It doesn't have to be mental health. It can be any any advice at all.
1: I guess not to underestimate myself. I think, um, I think when you're young, you don't always have an idea of everything that's possible. And so that's what I would say to myself. And that's what I would like us to do for young people in schools.
0: Don't think anybody suggested that one before yet. So far in the podcast, I think it's a really good one about not underestimating yourself and trying to then what else can we do? In schools or society to, I suppose, widen the horizons or the um, yeah. aspirations of our young people. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, any listener will check Anne out uh, in her work which she does, and on at Swansea University, it's on the website, and and then there's obviously access, I assume, to the the adolescent platform information on that and the broader data mine stuff, and and the suicide um, monitoring or surveillance system and all that's available online so there's lots of great resources so and thanks a million for all the work that you do and all the work you do for mq in particular as as well as the broader work on suicide self-harm and mental health so thanks a million on behalf of craig and i for joining
1: us today thank you thanks for having me thanks mq open mind is presented by mq mental health research the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.